Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so delighted to be joined today by Megan Giddings. She's an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. Her first novel, Lakewood, was one of New York Magazine's top 10 books of 2020, an NPR Best Book of 2020, a Michigan Notable Book for 2021, a finalist for two NAACP Image Awards, and was a finalist for an LA Times Book Prize. Her second novel is called Women Could Fly. Hi, Megan. Hi, Maris. It's nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you too. Megan, I feel like anytime there's a book that's speculative and yet very much takes place in a world that is very much like our own, I I wonder about how much of your writing is just sheerly prescient and how much is sheerly coincidence? Like, so when did you start writing this book? So like the seeds of it were 2018, where like anytime a, my agent takes one of my books out, immediately he's like, let's work on the new thing. Don't think about the next okay. book. But I do think, excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> she's young. She's excited. But um, anytime... I really think of when the books started coming together, it was um, early 2020, where there were about two years of just sort of wandering around the book. And I mean, there are parts of it that are still very present, but I think what, I think what really made the book come to shade in my mind is I, Lakewood was a lot about race. And I, felt like I was kind of treading water with writing about race. And also I just wasn't in the space. And around January, I started writing a lot about gender. And I, I think it was all on, I don't want to say it's on everybody's minds because an assumption like that is ridiculous in this country. Uh, but maybe to the people listening to this podcast, okay. it's a safe bet. <laughs> yeah, but to the people listening to this podcast, I, I thought one of the things that I I don't want to talk about this man, but I feel like that's how everyone prefaces talking about Trump. Named. Yeah, but but I think that's what the Trump presidency like immediately when he took office and started setting those oaths in. I mean, the number of people who were like, "He's going to get rid of Roe. He's going to find a way to make women second class citizens." And we're we're feeling it. We're really feeling it. Um, and and so this book, of course, though, is not about abortion. It's about witchcraft, right? Tell me about mapping on that th- this the subject of witchcraft onto putting that in a world that is very similar to our own. So some of it is I'm just the type of person, even even when I was getting started with writing like a million years ago in college, I I couldn't write about things straight on. Like I needed the buffer of still feeling like it was play. Like anytime I tried to write a straight realist story, it, it was like the saddest shit. 
Like it was always <laughs> just, here's a bunch of bummers. And it, I mean, people like it sometimes, but most of the time I, I don't have fun writing that way. Right. So I wanted to find a way to have fun in play. And I like magic. I, and I also think the other thing is a lot of adults want to pretend they don't like magic, but we do. We like to find ways to play, like cover your kids' ears if they're listening and you're listening in the car. But I, I think it's one of the reasons why they're still like that Santa Claus and Easter Bunny. It's not just like this is a special thing for kids. It's also like it lets you perpetuate this world where anything is possible. And I mean, we still do live in a world at times where it feels like anything is possible, but in the worst possible way. <laughs> the connotation is different. Yeah. Um, but we can still root for the tooth fairy. <laughs> yeah, we can still root for the tooth fairy or a world where your kid also teaches their kid about the tooth fairy. Or it, it's even just like that magic of tricking yourself into saying like, this pair of shoes makes me lucky. Or I've never had a bad thing happen to me in this shirt. So I save it now for things where the magic of the shirt gives me power and we still trick ourselves. So I want to really heighten the idea of that. Yeah. Um, and, and so in this kind of alternate world, the Salem witch trials happened Mm-hmm. And then take a, take us down through history a little bit. So they happened. And I mean, you might even say that they were successful. And everyone's like, this was a cool idea. It <laughs> saved the world. Right. And we're going to keep doing that level of watching women, watching queer people watching anyone essentially who doesn't conform to our rigid societal standards. And I mean, again, that's kind of an easy overlay to how the U.S. works. It's democracy if you have money, if you are cis, because I mean, yeah, we still have a bit more democracy than trans people. I mean, it's true though. I mean, the more you get away from being that centered cis, straight, rich, white man who is you better be Christian too. Then we start getting like these layers of democracy. Like I would say that most of us probably experience more of democracy light at best than the actual things that people keep telling us we have in this country. Yeah. I, I There's a part in the book where Joe, the main character says yeah. that black women are more likely to be accused of witchcraft as are gay men. And it, Stephen Thrasher was a recent guest on the show and his his new book is all about how the pandemic affects um, some people more than others. And it's very it's very much that same map on to democracy. Like the people yeah. who are getting less democracy are probably getting sicker. Yeah, and I, that makes me really want to read this book. It's, it's yeah, yeah. But um, I, I guess the other thing is there's kind of also this line too of how this country has always treated women. I mean, the more you read and listen to Roe and realize, yeah, it it's built on this idea of privacy 
And then you also read about how Roe is taken away. And essentially it's saying in some ways that women don't deserve privacy. People, anyone who can give birth to a child, any person, you for, you've given up that privacy just by the way you were born. And that's kind of the world we live in now. And so it makes sense then, of course, that Joe and all of the women around her must register with the government. Right. And I, I don't know. I, I also feel like the way women, and I I also want to say that when I, when I'm saying women here, I, I, I'm not excluding trans women here. Because I think there's a special layer of surveillance that happens to trans women even more lately than cis women, which is, I I mean, you've seen the nuts turf rhetoric on Twitter, like you can't ignore it. It's everywhere and it's terrifying. Yeah, and it's just the fact that like they're now, I, I, I can't imagine how it feels to be a trans woman right now going into public and fearing that someone's going to put you up on social media and try to judge whether or not you pass or not, or try to figure out where you work or how you're living. And I mean, and it's kind of like that infuriating thing. If you, I'm sorry, if I'm a little scared, I'm getting over COVID. I just got to have a moving truck. Oh. But yeah, I'm, I'm having a time of my life. <laughs> um, but one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is I can't remember which podcast I was listening to. It, it might have been oh, you're wrong about, but it was talking about the ways that we try to define humanity and it's always an opposition. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking a lot too about like, how do you even define a woman? And one of the things I wrote down is it seems like we undergo a lot of surveillance to be either the right kind of woman or to make sure that we're safe or to make sure that we're presenting ourselves the right way. And like, if you define it that way and start thinking about the number of ways that it's all about being the right kind of woman and nothing bad can ever happen to you because that's your fault. It wasn't that the surveillance state also enhances anything or makes it so that it seems socially acceptable that if a woman doesn't act the right way, she gets mistreated. And if you start making that definition too, well, it's so cynical, but it is. It's how at least our society treats any person who they immediately identify as a woman or woman adjacent or as non-binary. Yeah, and 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 in the novel, you're really good about showing us that um, the people who are enforcing the the surveillance say it's for our own good, mm-hmm. are worried about safety in and in scare quotes, um. And yet there there are cracks that begin to show. Yeah. Mm. I'm thinking specifically about um, two characters um, who we meet sort of towards the end of the book, um, but I won't give too much away, but they are 
Bill and Bill. Yeah. And I like that they have to use fake names probably because like you sh you can't let a witch get your name, but also they're all Bill. <laughs> they're not original people. I mean, I don't know. You describe it's... what they wear. Yeah. They wear very basic. They could be going to Congress or they could be like, the professor who has tenure in your department and is like, what is equity? It's me having my research fund. Don't worry about anybody else. I mean, they're dressed well. They, they love to tell women what to think. They're kind of mansplainers. And I mean, I think it's also the only part of the book where I'm explicit about abortion because it is again about a list of things from the absurd to the possible that the characters get confronted with of any of these things could make you a witch there's there's a list <laughs> yeah um jamie uh, jamie amber i know you know her when jamie read that part of the novel she told me i should sell t-shirts with just the list yes because yes. like so many people would just buy that list as a t-shirt <laughs> give me a couple of examples from that list so the listeners um join in. Is, let's see i think it's have you had an abortion have you had sex with another woman have you met and convened with the devil i'm pretty sure that's one of them yep. do animals speak to you <laughs> it's uh it really runs the gamut but I mean, that's also some of those witch trial questions too. Mm -hmm. run the gamut of the absurd. You, were you dancing with the devil? She saw you To Did you point at this woman the day before she got sick? And that's your fault because you pointed at her and that look in your eyes, it was pure evil. Yeah, that's uh, straight Salem. Um and then, of course, in this world, which is also they're they're saving grace if 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 that may be what it is of of living in this society that almost exclusively rejects them mm -hmm. is capitalism, yeah, it's money because again i I can think of very few things that if it makes people money, they're going to get rid of it money almost always trumps morals at least in the united states i don't feel comfortable talking about anywhere else but we love money so much and the idea that it makes us special that if you have access to it you can get away with so much and i and i feel like that's a really simple thing to say but it's still anytime i say something that at least one person gets mad at me and they're like no anybody it's not about money, it's about innovation. But I mean, again, how do we, something's an innovation. It made someone a lot of money. If you <laughs> remotely innovate and you don't pan it, then people are like, you fool. You could have had millions of dollars. But instead you made it so everybody could have this, you're an idiot. Like that's, there's always someone who's mad. Absolutely, we, we revere the people who keep it to themselves and for a small group of people. 
Um, and you have the, such a funny um, little aside about um, Joe going to this chain store um, that that sounds so fun. <laughs> oh, I would love to go to a chain store. <laughs> and, and so it's the witchy items. Yeah. And yet, and the owner, of course, is, um, I was going to say pro-life, like scare quotes, but. but. No, I'm sure that they identify themselves as pro-life. I, I kind of thought of them as like the equivalent of like an even more cynical Walton family. Like they have their big box stores and then they have these duplicitous chain stores that you're supposed to think are like natural offshoots, but. No, they're all a chain and they make sure that witchcraft seems accessible, but a little silly, but you can still see yourself going in there and talking yourself into buying these crystals and crystals and stones are just nice to look at. What is it? $3 for a crystal? Okay. That sounds fun. Give me all the crystals. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in the midst of of explaining this state of witchcraft, you tell this really lovely story about Joe and her her grief. Her mother dies when she's fourteen, and she spends the book trying to figure out what happened, why. And 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 how um, inevitably what happens in grief is that you remember very specific parts of the person. Yeah, I. So I wanted to think. I want to think a lot about mother daughter relationships too, and I also want to think a lot about like I, I feel like there are multiple forms of grief in this relationship because there's both like the grief of her mother's disappearance her death and also the grief of growing up a little bit too and trying to find your identity and maybe the person who you most would look toward even though I'm sure most 15 year olds and 16 year olds are Clearly not like I'm looking at my mom. I I think that most of them would be very embarrassed at the idea of even saying that or thinking it. But I, I'm in my 30s now and looking back, like there are things that clearly I like my mom's alive, but we we have a kind of a complicated relationship. Like there are just ebbs and flows to it. It's not I'm not one of those people who could ever say either of my parents are my best friend. I'm and I'm kind of always been a little envious. Of, <sighs> she somehow turned on a Netflix show too at the same time. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, I'm also kind of a little envious of people who have that closeness in their families where they can say like. <laughs> Like they have a family where they can draw the lines when they know that their parent is acting like their friend, is acting like their parent, or sometimes just another person. And I think some of the push and pull in my family 
this might be too personal. I don't know. We'll find out. But it is kind of that push and pull between how different my mom and I are as people. I, I admire a lot of things about her, but there's never going to be like that level of mutual understanding that comes from like having someone who like you would vibe with even if they weren't your mom. And I think that she and I would have to come to like many levels of mutual understanding if we weren't related to have that level of let's be real with each other. And I think some of that just got into the book of that thinking about how much am I like her? How much am I not like her? And could I even see her because I was 14 years old for Joe? Could she see her mom clearly? And the answer is no, she was 14. Her mom is only in like brief glimpses a person. And then most of the time it's like, mom, you have to act this way or mom, stop trying to make me act this way. And it's that push and pull of, we both want you to do something that you don't want to do. Yeah. Even like, I thought it was so telling that when we're really first meeting Joe's mom in in the beginning of the book, um, we learn that she enforced a strict diet that Joe had to be on too as a tween. (laughs) And how her friend has a mother who says, "Mm, you can learn to love your body, whatever size it is. And, And that really, you're giving clues at least to the reader, uh, even if, even if uh, Joe can't see it. Yeah, I, in the, the friend's mom, she comes back later in the book, huge spoiler everybody, Joe's <laughs> friend's mom comes back later in the book. But, <laughs> but I wanted to also show like that progression where it's still that friend's mom gets a little real with her, Joe. Yeah, I'm going to be vague about the situation there and there, but it mm-hmm. still is that thing where Joan, Joan might never be able to get real with her mother, but, and her mom doesn't seem like the kind of person who even wants that level of intimacy if she was around. But I want to show like another contrasting view of motherhood where it is sometimes someone gets really real with you and tries to give you just a sense of you're in danger or pulling back a little bit. And so of course, when Joe's mother disappears, it's it's a great true crime story. Yeah, but also makes Joe much more likely be accused of witchcraft because what do witches do? They can vanish and no one can find them. And so Joe has been hyper-monitored her whole life because her black mom disappeared. And well, maybe magic runs through families. Maybe Joe has instructions from her. Maybe maybe Joe doesn't want to hear at all about her mom's disappearance in some ways because it's put her in a lot of danger. And so there's a lot of push and pull in Joe. Yeah, she's she's only watched snippets of the um unsolved mysteries type show that that was about her Um, 
this can't go on the podcast, but I just think you'll like it. Is um so I, I've been talking to the writer, they're working on adapting the book. Mm-hmm. And she's one of the things that she's really excited about is trying to find a way to do an unsolved mysteries type show within the show that like gives little snippets. Like she wants to do like this level of layering where it's this, and then there's also gonna be flashbacks to Tiana's life as a teen. Yeah, as a teen. Okay. Yeah, and and she's building more into it. Like the idea is that it'll be a show where there's like, yeah, a hot young actress, but they want to focus more on Tiana, Tiana and what it means to be like a woman who chooses to disappear and also like explores herself on this island full of magic. As but I just think you'll like that. I love that. I love that. I hope I hope I get to to see it. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, but aside from the being accused of witchcraft and being constantly monitored thing and mm-hmm. the <laughs> missing her mother thing, um, Joe's life is like sort of, she's she's kind of finally got a handle on it. Sort of. Where, I mean, she has a steady job that she likes at the Museum of Cursed Art. <laughs> which is really fun to write and think about how again like art might let you have this entrance into another world but also it's still a little scoldy or makes it seem just the slightest bit dangerous which is both like monetizing because people love danger yeah but it's also like no this is bad she's dating a guy who she kind of likes Preston aka Party City um but she's still really conflicted. She's bisexual. I I don't, I always get a little like grumpy, not that you did it, but when people are like, oh, is Joe Biden? I was like, are you kidding me? I, I don't know how many more ways I can say that this character is bi in this book other than, I guess I covered an explicit sex scene, but it didn't really like hit the flow of the book. I feel like you got close enough though. <laughs> yeah I, I mean I mentioned fisting I, I don't but I don't know if the type of reader who can't pick up the signals that Joe is by know what fisting is and that's why I, I mean, was wondering she, like she meets a woman at a party she meets a woman at a party they make out I mean she confesses her interest to another character I mean I don't know. It, it's been a really weird time mm. with this book in some ways to see what people are like not paying attention to. It's very interesting. But I mean, you, you really do talk about, you know, so, so in the, in Joe's world um, at by 28, you must be married or else you have to be registered with the government. Mm-hmm. If, if you're a woman, if you're a woman and we get some glimpses into what's that like for people who are queer. Um, and it's like, it has always been like, yeah, you get a sham marriage that maybe your parents help you even set up so that you don't, they don't have to worry about you. And they kind of just think, well, this is enough. I'm helping you to slightly rebel but we don't have to worry about anything because we'll keep pairing each other up 
and we'll get through it. And the book, like, there's a mention of trans people. There is. I don't think it's as explicit as it could have been where, yeah, being trans is, of course, criminalized. It's the government probably, I mean, it definitely does in this world act against it. I just realized that I was much more specific in the later part of the book than I remembered when I started talking about this. We won't talk too much about that, but it 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 is there. It's very much there. Um, I want to talk a little bit more because because we're on this subject about Angie, mm-hmm. Joe's best friend. I love that one of the things that they love to do together in this very oppressive world is write sketch comedy. (laughs) Tell me about that. Um, Some of it is, it reflects like one of my closest, oldest friendships where we don't write sketch comedy, but we used to to play this game together where it was called Apartment. And we would like list like five people that we both knew and they would always be people that we could think of would not get along in like a small apartment in, in, in a weird way it's kind of like us verbally just playing the sims like we would talk about like this person would do and it would always turn like weird jokes about these people but we would play this game all the time for years and it would help us both write where she's not a creative writer she was a journalist at the time but it would still get us both like in the mindset of we're going to write this thing or we're being creative and we're having fun. And I I think most friendships that have that aspect of play with each other, it, it shows like these people are true friends. You can go to these places, you can get real with them and you still might have to have that mask for the vulnerability of this is the game that we're playing, but it's there. And I thought if I could get some aspect of it into a friendship then I know that the friendship is working because so many books that I read about friendship they don't really get into like the joy of it where it's like still even if you're in your 30s or 40s there's someone you can play with a little bit even if you're just gossiping it it like scatters off into play it's this whole world you're building together it so is a great romance yeah it's kind of a bummer when you read books that are highlighting about friendship, but they don't get into like the more romantic parts of it. It's always, it's almost always like, here's 35 pages of this friendship you'd want to be immersed in. And then they break up for so much of it. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I liked that Angie was there and I like that it's a symbolic kind of, um relationship in that joe is starting to understand the joy of being able to make things and to make things with other people yeah i i earlier when we were talking i i kind of thought about like the negative ways that you define people i think like the only way that it's like beautiful that you define people is we love making things it and it's so wonderful it it always makes me mad when someone's like, well, what's the point of writing or drawing or art during a time like this? And it's because it, it's what makes us the most human. We love this shit. Let us do it. 
Megan, I love that. And I'm going to um, stop here because otherwise we're going to get into dangerous territory. I might have to um, email you some questions later. Okay. <laughs> um, but before we go, would you like to recommend some books for us? Yes. Okay. So a few books that I read recently and loved. One is Ross Gay's Beholding. And the fact that, I, I mean, some of it is, I just have a lot of gratitude for Ross because he is one of my former teachers. But it, it's also like the ability to make a whole book that is beautiful and languid about a photo and a moment in sports history. And that it, there's such a division sometimes with how writers talk about sports, but <laughs> sports is our culture. And too, I, so it, it just really spoke to me in a way that reminded me of how like I used to be really self-conscious of, of like really liking like soccer. And now <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, it's fine. I can talk about it all the time. It's great. Um, another one that I've been recommending a lot is Kelly Jo Ford's Crooked Hallelujah because it it's beautiful. And I think it also, it's a book that teaches you a different way to write a novel. So I've been thinking a lot about it again because even though it's a novel and stories, there there are two sections that are really disparate in some ways. Well, there's stories technically, but I, I think about them a lot because one, one was one of the reviews said that like one of them just shouldn't have been in the book. And I, I, I don't even know if you should really say that in a review because it's so ungenerous to the author's vision. And it's usually those Especially things- Especially in that, a debut. Yeah, but it's also worth thinking about like what what are these two stories adding to the book that are just indispensable at least to the writer and it made me think a lot about how many novels you need to like pull away from the area that most of the novel is in or it just feels monotonous but it also it's kind of how our brains work we need the contrast to actually see the pattern that the mm -hmm. writer was building and so it's really frustrating me in general to think about the number of times someone's like, well, why is this thing here? And it's the, the re because it like pushed out at you, it means it worked. It, it means that the book is working. If you actually are paying attention, you snap back into focus. Do I need to do one more or is it too good? Please do one more. Okay. One more. I'm trying not to overlap because I've been giving recommendations for different things. So I want to keep spreading it out. Yeah. Okay. This is coming out in the fall. And I think a lot of people are going to be really interested in it. It's a debut and it's by Aaron Adams and it's called Jackal. And it's very frightening and it's unsettling. And it's about a young black woman who goes back to her small town that a few other, there are a few other families of color in, but black women keep disappearing there. Mm. 
and she sets up to solve a mystery. And it's a lot about anxieties and being predominantly white spaces. I mean, I, I thousand percent know why this book was sent to me, but it's just been on my mind a lot because it's a debut and I, I think it's coming out in late September or early October, which is a really hard time to debut in. So I think more people should just keep it on their radar because I know between like Cormac McCarthy and George Saunders and the new Ling Ma, which I mean, the new Ling Ma is incredible, but oh, it is. no one needs me to go on a podcast and say, pick, pick up Bliss Montage, you'll love it. Because yeah, of course you will, it's everywhere. But I think a lot of people aren't going to notice Aaron's book that's coming out. Jackal, I will be looking mm-hmm. for it. It's got a beautiful cover, bright red, but with a face. The Women Could Fly. It's a beautiful book. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.